0: From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, Republican lawmakers have finalized the new House and Senate legislative political maps required by a federal order. And now they look to finish work on a congressional map. Will the maps pass muster with the judge who called for fairer representation for black voters?
1: I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. Four of the Republican candidates for president will debate tonight in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. But Trump, once again, won't be there. We'll preview what may be the final debate before GOP primary voting begins in January.
0: Plus, Marjorie Taylor Greene accuses fellow Georgia GOP Congressman Rich McCormick of being physically aggressive with her. He says it was a friendly gesture. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Tia Mitchell, um, you know, there was a time, we're going to talk about the Republican debate in Tuscaloosa tonight a little bit later in the podcast, but it's interesting to me that there was a time when presidential debates were truly important marquee events that that millions of people tuned in because they were so interested in hearing candidates. I'm not so sure that's the case anymore, especially as Donald Trump in this election cycle continues to skip the debates and the other candidates are having such a hard time developing any momentum. What do you think about that?
1: Right. I think it's a combination of things. And I mean, Millions of people will probably still watch the debate tonight, but not the tens of millions, maybe that um, 20 or 30 years ago. Some of that is just the way we view live TV has changed. But some of that is because President Trump is not on the stage and a lot of Republican voters have already made up their minds. So why would they tune in when their preferred candidate isn't going to be there? And it's basically telling them these debates are not worth watching not worth his participation.
0: It strikes me that if the four candidates who are going to be on the stage tonight uh, don't have much opportunity to uh, advance their uh, position relative to Trump, the real uh, winner of this debate could be the, uh, the relatively unknown network that is producing it, News Nation. There aren't an awful lot of people who know what News Nation is. They'll learn about it for the first time tonight.
1: Right. Yeah. News Nation is kind of positioning itself as a truly centrist network, although in some ways they're considered a little bit center right. Um, But they're what filled in for the old, I think, WGN for us, um, older folks who uh, remember cable before streaming. But, yeah, they'll they'll get they'll get a chance to produce their first presidential debate and i'll at least be tuning in
0: yeah me too tia one last element of that um as you point out news nation is really the new iteration of what was wgn a very important television station in chicago as i was growing up and you know why it was particularly important for me when i was a kid because it was wgn that broadcast every day Bozo's Circus.
1: I remember Bozo the Clown.
0: All right. Let's get to uh, the significant elements of today's podcast. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nigat, along with Tia Mitchell, the AJC correspondent in Washington. We're going to be joined in just a minute by uh, two distinguished guests uh, to talk about any number of important news uh, stories that have uh, d- are developing in Georgia and beyond. But Tia, before we turn to them, um, you had a couple of stories on your beat that I think we should spend just a couple of minutes on. Um, And one of them is a story that you broke, uh, I think, this morning. um, You have reported that Marjorie Taylor Greene um, is now saying uh, that Rich McCormick uh, got physical with her in a way that was inappropriate. Tell us what that uh, means. What is she saying Rich McCormick, her colleague in the GOP delegation, uh, did?
1: Yeah. And this is a story. uh, CNN broke the story, but we were able to confirm a lot of the details as reported by CNN and provide some additional context in this morning's newsletter. But essentially, it goes back to an exchange between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Rich McCormick on the House floor. As you noted, both of them are members of Georgia's delegation, both Republicans. So ideally, they would be colleagues who are able to work together. But the falling out happened um, prior to this exchange when both of them had those censure resolutions regarding Representative Rashida Tlaib and some of the more, um, uh, I guess, troubling or problematic comments she made about Um, the Israel Hamas war. And we've talked about that on this program. And we talked about how the fact, ultimately it was McCormick's resolution that got approved on the house floor to censure Tlaib, which really made Marjorie Taylor Greene mad because she filed her resolution first and really felt that McCormick stepped on her toes. And so they had this exchange afterwards on the house floor which really started with McCormick confronting a different Republican colleague who, I guess, didn't support his censure resolution and McCormick didn't like the way that other member kind of treated him. And so he tried to confront that member on the House floor and that member refused to talk to Rich McCormick. And so it just so happened that Marjorie Taylor Greene was nearby. So um, Rich McCormick turned to her, put his hands on her shoulders and said, you know, at least we can communicate. At least we have, we can disagree, but at least we have an open line of communication. Um, and Marjorie Taylor Greene immediately recoiled both of them kind of agree on those details now where they disagree is that Marjorie Taylor Greene says the way he put his hands on her and the way he spoke to her was aggressive and intimidating and she really felt mistreated in that moment Um, whereas Rich McCormick says it was a quote friendly gesture he was just kind of you know touching her for you know, in a friendly, um, non-combative way. But he also says that when she recoiled, he immediately apologized and said he didn't mean to, you know, hurt her. He didn't mean to offend her. He was truly sorry. Um, And, you know, Rich McCormick thought it was over that, you know, she didn't appreciate being touched. He apologized in the moment. Thought that was the end of it. Then a few days later, he gets a call from Speaker Mike Johnson, and wanting to know his side of the story because Margie Taylor Green had complained to the Speaker again, saying that Rich McCormick had um, not been very nice, and that. She basically wanted the Speaker to step in and reprimand him. So
0: so we don't know if this is headed anywhere. We really don't know the extent of the uh, confrontation that Marjorie Taylor Greene is accusing Rich McCormick of. I mean, she says he was physically aggressive, um, and uh, we have to uh, take her at her word, even though Rich McCormick says he tried to apologize. But the reason it's even noteworthy, I think, is um, it just continues this... Um, dissension that is going on among some of the Republican members of the Georgia congressional delegation. And Marjorie Taylor Greene always seems to be at the center of it.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't want to... Victim blame, you know, because Marjorie Taylor Greene says she was victimized. So, you know, sometimes Marjorie Taylor Greene positions herself as the aggressor. You know, there have been exchanges with Democrats. There was that nasty exchange with Lauren Boebert, not necessarily physical, but she's admitted to using some not so nice language against people who she's in conflict with. But on this particular um, incident, Marjorie Taylor Greene says she was victimized and in, in a physical way. Now, even beyond just the conflicts that Greene has had with other members, even broader, it's showing the tension and the, the lingering kind of dysfunction among House Republicans. Like even in the non-disputed facts of what happened you've got bad blood between green and rich mccormick two republicans from the same state you've got rich mccormick even um admitting that there's bad bl- bad blood from other republicans mm-hmm. that you know they won't even talk to each other yeah. um and this has been going on you know it started before kevin mccarthy was was kicked out as speaker but it got much worse after then there's just and and it makes it hard to govern when you've got republicans literally bit, bickering amongst each well, other
0: thank you for that because i think that's the bottom line on this it says to us that there's this ongoing chaos may be too strong a word but the dissension among republicans is really, really clear and obvious. And and I think this is another example of it. Very quickly, let's turn to one other issue and and then bring our our guests in. Um, uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville uh, yesterday released his hold on hundreds of military promotions. As we know, this has been going on for months. He feels that the military's policy of paying for... Uh, members to go to, if they are serving in states that do not allow abortion, going to states where they uh, can have abortions is immoral, in Tuberville's words. And so he's had this hold on for months. Republicans have tried to talk him out of it. All of a sudden, yesterday, he releases the hold. And and I mention it because obviously Georgia is a very big state. For military personnel, we don't know the exact number of promotions that may have been held up here uh, on military uh, installations around the state, but certainly some are, are no doubt involved. But all of a sudden, the hold is over, and there's questions as to uh, who, what. I mean, what did Tuberville get out of this? <laughs>
1: Yeah, there, the vast majority of the holds are over. There were about 450 military promotions that have been on hold for basically 10 months. While, as you noted, Tuberville kind of protested against Pentagon policy that would allow people to basically members of the armed forces to travel if they wanted to obtain an abortion and lived in a state where it was illegal. Um And because that number grew so great and there were members of the military who talked about the hardship this was causing because and I think it's kind of hard if you're not military to understand like, okay, what's the big point? They're still not losing their job, but because military promotions and hierarchy are kind of built into if people are able to move to new posts and their families and their benefits and so much is tied into rank that this was really causing hardships, according to members of the military. So yes, the hold is up, Tuberville mostly. There are still about 25 mm-hmm. top brass that are still on hold, including about 11 four-star generals that Tuberville still is not blocking. The Senate can try to do it in a way, um, the the more normal way of confirmations, but that takes a lot of time. So even to get 25 people confirmed would take up weeks, if not months. All right, um,
0: All right. a lot happening on your beat up in Washington and especially on Capitol Hill, Tia. Thanks for that. Let's bring in our uh, two guests right now. Um, a, a recurring guest on this program, Professor Charles Bullock from the University of Georgia. You know, Chuck, when we introduce you, I don't know how often I uh, uh, use one of your titles. You are the Richard B. Russell uh, profess- Chair uh, in Political Science at the University of Georgia, among I don't know how many other honorary <laughs> positions <laughs> are attached to your name, but that's a big one. Richard B. Russell, having been a, a truly uh, a legendary senator for uh, 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 the state of Georgia, you're also the dean of political science professors <laughs> in the state. Uh, thank you so much, Chuck, for being here today.
3: Always a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation opportunity to be with you this morning. We're also joined by Bobby Kahn. Bobby
0: Kahn served as a chief of staff to Governor Roy Barnes starting in 1990, after the 1998 election. Right. Um, and one of the reasons, Bobby, we've invited you on the show today is that you were part of the last Democratic administration, last Democratic-controlled legislature which was able to do a redistricting based on the uh, 2000 uh, census. And we're going to go back and look at that because what's happening today in many ways, uh, there are echoes back to your redistricting in uh, 2001. Thanks for coming in. Good to be here. I'm not sure when the statute of
4: limitations runs on that, but (laughs) the Republicans have been talking about that ever since.
0: All right, we're going to, you know, uh, Tia, clearly, redistricting has been a major hot topic of conversation on the show. And today, one of the reasons I'm really interested in digging into it a little more is certainly to get the expertise of uh, Chuck Bullock and, and then to have Bobby weigh in as well. So, so Chuck, I'd like to start with a fundamental question that I'm not quite certain I understand, and I'm hoping you can explain it to me. We know that Judge Steve Jones said that uh, the maps that were drawn uh, following the 2020 census do not fairly represent the interests of black voters. He ordered the legislature to go back in, create seven new majority black districts in the legislature, five in the House, two in the Senate. And he said the congressional map was also not representative, uh, representing black voters to the extent they deserve based on their population. He said they must create one additional black congressional seat district. All right. So the legislature has already passed the legislative maps. The uh, congressional map will be finalized as soon as today or tomorrow. But here's my question for you. In the Senate, senators did in fact create two new black majority uh, uh, state Senate districts. And yet Democrats argue that it in no way increases the power of black voters to elect Democratic senators. Help us understand how that can happen. How can you create two new black districts and yet say they're not going to have the power to elect new black uh, or Democratic
3: um uh, senators. Yeah, putting this in context, the legislature will finish its work by Friday, and the governor will sign it. At that point, Judge Jones is going to schedule another hearing. And at that hearing, the representatives of the state, the attorney general's office will come forward and represent the The legislature's done and said, look, Judge, we've done what you asked. And here are these additional districts, uh, check the box, and we've done it. The plaintiffs will then have a chance to say, not so fast. And I think what they're going to rely upon is a passage from Judge Jones' order. which says, the state cannot remedy the Section 2 violations described herein by eliminating minority opportunity districts elsewhere in the plan. I think that's where it's going to play out in the courtroom. So that the plaintiffs will say, by creating these new majority black districts, what you've done is you've weakened the minority influence in some other districts that you haven't done anything to add to this. Because, certainly what Democrats were hoping for going into this would be that those numbers you, you reported would be additional districts that Democrats could win so that they would pick up a sixth congressional seat and two more in the Senate. And they're going to argue that the plan, which the uh, legislature approved does not do that. And in part, it doesn't do that with regard to the state Senate, by taking what had already been democratic districts making them blacker so yeah maybe it does increase the likelihood that an african-american would win those but one of those districts was already represented by a man who i believe considers himself to be both black and latino Uh, and then with regard to the congressional district i think plan and that i think is probably the one which is the state has the greatest vulnerability on there uh I suspect what the plaintiffs will do is say, yes, there is this new majority black district now numbered six over on the west side of Atlanta, but they'll say, but what you did in the course of creating that is you butchered what was the seventh district, the one that uh, Lucy McBath had, and yeah, that was not majority black, it was majority minority, and it it certainly elected an African American, and so they would say that was a district which was a minority opportunity district, it was performing. And now uh, it has been dismantled.
0: So uh, let's say I want to ask you one more question and then bring (laughs) Tia and Bobby in. So let's talk about that congressional uh, map. As you point out, just to clarify, the 7th District, which is where Lucy McBath had to move after uh, having one in the 6th District, Republicans in their redistricting, initial redistricting, Uh, uh, made that a Republican-leaning district, so she moved over to the 7th. She beat Carolyn Bordeaux and has been serving in the 7th. As you point out, that is not a majority-black district, but it is a majority-minority district made up of black voters, Latino voters, and Asian uh, voters. Um, But now the the map has been redrawn in the 7th so that it is, I think, maybe as much as 52%... White. I don't know that I have the percentage exactly correct, but it's close to that, which is why Lucy McBath would have to move. And so, even though the legislature did, in fact, create a new black district west in the western part of the state, uh, they've done it by subtracting a district from uh, Lucy McBath in the seventh, right?
3: Yeah, but your your numbers are a bit off. That uh, new seventh district is actually about seventy five percent white. Oh my so, gosh, it's yeah. that much. <laughs> yeah, I mean it goes all the way up and takes into Lanega now. So uh, yeah, it it is a very very white, which means in today's voting patterns, a very very Republican district. Tia?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm 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 glad we have experts on the show today because you know when I. Look at the maps. I just get so curious about whether they can pass muster, um, particularly the congressional map, particularly because Lucy McBass existing 7th district, as we've already noted, is very um Full of people of color, but not just black. So my question for you, represent Professor Bullock, (laughs) is: um, Are there existing? I think a lot of people assume the Voting Rights Act because it was written at a time where black voting power was the concern. Um. Will the Voting Rights Act, can the Voting Rights Act be applied? Has it been applied to protecting other types of what we would call minority access districts? Is the 7th District, as it exists today, eligible to be protected? That's what I'm still confused about.
3: Yeah, and if we still had Section 5 around, then the standard for that was non-retrogression. That would mean that you don't leave... Minority voters worse off than they were previously in the old plan, because that's no longer operable. So the litigation here is all filed under Section 2. And Section 2 says that uh, minority voters should have the same opportunity to elect their candidates of choice as do white voters. And so... I think that does then open the door for the judge, as he hears the arguments, to say, "Well, yeah, the minority electorate did succeed in choosing Lucy McBath uh, in that district, and that that opportunity no longer exists." So, Bobby Kahn,
0: let me bring you into this conversation. Um, one of the biggest issues at, at stake here, beyond whether black, whether number one, the legislature has complied with Judge Jones order or not, which will certainly be something Judge Jones will look at uh, after Friday. they got to finish by Friday. The maps will go to the judge. We'll see how soon he looks at them and decides uh, whether they are uh, valid or not. But, but here's an aspect of this that I think is particularly interesting. Um, Jason Torshinsky, who is a Republican election attorney, um, has argued that the success of black candidates... In districts without a black majority, and that would be Lucy McBath, since it isn't a black majority, it's a minority majority district, shows that the Voting Rights Act's uh, redistricting protections aren't needed. Now, if that argument can go up through the courts, as far as the United States Supreme Court, it raises questions as to whether another important protection of the Voting Rights Act could be invalidated. Well, I mean, that that certainly
4: is what was expected <laughs> uh, after the Alabama decision in 2010 and everything that came since then until Alabama and Georgia and Louisiana did things that even the, the Supreme Court said was a bit too far. So that, that kind of put the brakes on things. And so if these maps... Offended the the courts in this day and time, then they got to be pretty bad, and they were, and they are. I find it interesting that the Republicans are uh, are certain they know what the court's going to do
1: <laughs>
4: uh, because they didn't know it before, and for them to say they're doing and the other thing is for them to say they're doing. Uh, I, I don't think we can trust them to, to to do anything right by black voters given their history particularly the last 20 years, and so that's kind of where we are now.
0: Tia, what's interesting about all that to me is that um, the Voting Rights Act, of course, does specifically uh, protect, I mean, as it originally was conceived, and as portions of it, which are still in effect continue to protect, are the interests of black voters, not so-called coalition voters, which is, includes other minority voters, Hispanics, Asians, and the like. So this is opening up a whole new frontier, it strikes me, in how the courts may interpret the Voting Rights Act moving forward.
1: Right. And and I mean, I think what Republicans are hoping on is that as this case goes up to the Supreme Court, like so many others, that the new conservative majority, you know, the court is 6-3 split. You've got to convince two conservatives to vote to uphold or to enforce um, provisions of the Voting Rights Act in ways that the challenges to the map would like them to. And that's just a, a tall order. And Republicans are hoping that, I mean, at the end of the day, I think Republicans have made it clear a lot. Of, I'm not going to say all, but many Republicans have made it clear that they would like to do away with some of the Voting Rights Act Um Protections. That's why we saw, saw Section 5 fall. And I think it's also worth noting that the dismantling of the Voting Rights Act started in earnest only recently. Even under the Bush, George W. Bush administration, the entire Voting Rights Act was um, extended, uh, you know, Congress reauthorized it. In a pretty non-controversial way, um, but the Republican Party has shifted. We've talked a lot about that in the program, and part of that shift is saying, "Hey, if we can, why why should we um, adhere to some of these um, standards for voting and election protection if we don't have to well, anymore?"
0: But but but, Chuck, and then Bobby. Tia suggested the Supreme Court, which is a conservative majority, uh, might rule favorably on, on, uh, on the way the maps are drawn. But in fact, they even that conservative court uh, rejected Alabama's effort uh, <laughs> to disenfranchise uh, uh, black voters uh, there, Chuck. And then when Alabama refused to comply with the U.S. Supreme Court's order for how they needed to draw a new black district – Alabama refused, sent it back to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, you're going to get a special master to draw those districts because you won't pay attention to us.
3: Right. Yeah, let me say several things here which are going to come up. One is that, yeah, if we were to go back 40 years ago, and Georgia's maps back then were also struck down and had to come into compliance, and at that point the courts required that the districts be drawn at 65% black, and that was thought what was necessary in order to create a large enough population that uh, blacks could elect their candidates of choice. And now, right, because black Democrats are having success in getting 20, 25, maybe 30% of the white vote, you can generally see the district perform with well less than that, even less than 50%. With regard to the issue you raised about minority districts versus just having a black district, then what may be necessary would be to demonstrate that the political interests of blacks and Hispanics and maybe Asians all are the same direction. And this would come out of the jingles prongs which show require that you show that the minority population is politically cohesive. So that could be an issue that might get raised. Uh, So those are the kinds of things which which are gonna be coming forward. The Supreme Court certainly seemed to indicate that it was standing behind the trial court decision down in Alabama. And since that is what opens the door for this Georgia case, which is quite similar, particularly with regard to the congressional district, then it w- might be reasonable to assume that the Supreme court is not going to kind of take a different tack this soon after the decision it handed down back in the early summer in the Milligan case out of Alabama, where it said, yeah, you, we, we told you to draw an additional majority black district. You didn't do so. Therefore you're no longer compliant and, uh, as you say a special master would be appointed to draw this in. And the special master would not be appointed by the Supreme Court, but by Judge Jones. Right,
0: by Judge Jones. All right. We got to take a break, but I want to continue this conversation. I want to do a little history uh, lesson with Bobby Kahn here. Uh, Chuck Bullock, you uh, wrote in a paper uh, a, a long time ago about the 2001 redistricting that Bobby Kahn, Governor Barnes, and legislative Democratic legislative leaders. Uh, drew back in those days. You called it, quote, a blatant exercise of power by a political majority bent on self-perpetuation, which, of course, is true of any redistricting. But it's Bobby Kahn we have in the studio with (laughs) us who was part of that effort to draw the map the way they did. And I think it's instructive to talk a little about that because it gives us some insight about what's happening now. So we'll do that and more when we come back on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
2: Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song.
0: Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nigat. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. It'll help you stay on top of all the important news scoops and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's political team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. We're talking today with, of course, my colleague Tia Mitchell in the Washington Bureau and uh, also Professor Charles Bullock from the University of Georgia, who we should point out wrote, literally wrote the book on redistricting in uh, uh, American politics, um, a book called Redistricting the Most Political Activity in America, which is a great reason to have you on the show today, and Bobby Kahn, who served as Roy Barnes' chief of staff when Barnes was governor from 1999 to 2000, early 2003, and was the last administration, Democratic administration, to be able to draw new maps. Um, Tia, you were uh, certainly too young To be worrying about the two thousand one redistricting in Georgia, Um, but it was an extraordinary time in politics here because the century-plus-old Democratic hold on state offices, on congressional offices, um, on local. Uh, legislative uh, offices was beginning to erode. Republicans were making vast inroads. There were a number of Republicans who held constitutional offices when Roy Barnes was governor. Um, Paul Coverdale had won re-election as a Republican in the United States Senate. Um, and so when it came time to draw new maps, the challenge that Governor Barnes, legislative leaders, and Chief of Staff Bobby Kahn, who played a big, big role in how those maps were redrawn, was as we are becoming increasingly a minority party, how do we hold on to power legislatively and congressionally? It was an incredible time in Georgia politics, you,
1: So, and I'm glad Bobby's on because I've talked about this on the program before about how part of the reason why Democrats in Southern states lost their big majorities and how Republicans were able to craft new majorities in Southern states is because black Democrats who felt that white Democrats weren't giving them opportunities to, you know, increase black political power kind of created alliances with Republicans. So Bobby and Charles, I'm more versed in this, the impact of this in Florida, particularly after the 1980 and 1990 censuses. But I would love to get that perspective in Georgia, whether that rings true to you guys and some of that perspective of how Black Democrats, because they did not feel like White Democrats were respecting them in the Democrat, in the Black voting power, how that is one of the reasons why Democrats lost their majorities. Do you agree, Professor Bullock?
3: what you're about right is the 1980s and 1990s, and the same situation that you described in Florida was operable in Georgia. So you had both the legislative Black Caucus and then also the Republican Party wanting to get more seats. Those seats were filled by white Democrats. My enemy's enemy is my friend, and therefore that coalition came together because the two groups, although ideologically far apart on this one issue, did have a common objective. But by 2000, by that point, uh, the legislature in Florida had flipped from Republican to Demo- Democratic to Republican, and the same thing was happening in South and North Carolina. And so by that point, I believe the leaders of the, let's say, Black Caucus in Georgia looked at the world and said, you know, we cannot reasonably work with Republicans again because if we do so— they're probably going to become the majority party and if that happens then the members of the legislative black caucus would no longer chair committees and it'd be much less likely that their policy objectives would go forward so while the republican party reached out to caucus leaders and said hey come with us again as you did 10 and 20 years ago black caucus members said no 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 this time we're going to rally around and we're going to try to protect some white democrats so that there will be a democratic majority
0: bobby I think Chuck Bullock just said a really key aspect of that redistricting. You had black Democrats coming back over to your side, helping you create districts which would have white Democratic majorities.
4: Well, and Professor Bullock said that a lot more eloquently than I ever could uh, or would. But uh, but by that point, black Democrats were very much part of the leadership of certainly the General Assembly, yeah. there were two African-American constitutional officers then, including the Attorney General, and, um, you know, the, the, the Governor Barnes's agenda was certainly a, a lot different than a governor from the 80s or even uh, the early 90s, and uh, I mean, one of the things we did which sort of affected our prospects was we changed the flag. And uh, that that really affected things, and that that hurt that that uh, governed our uh, mindset going into redistricting. That we had put a lot of people, uh, not just ourselves, we put a lot of legislators on the line uh, with with very tough votes, and, uh, and and they needed to be protected. And uh, but what's happened since is you know you got to remember the Republicans were, I mean they they were poo pooing. I mean they were complaining about everything we did they were governor purdue ran on a commission for redistricting uh there were some senators who cried in the well about this and they said they weren't going to do it that way not only have they done it that way they put it on steroids and they've had the backing of the court done to do what it. that way uh gerrymandering partisan gerrymandering uh racial gerrymandering in their case uh but the other thing i would tell you and something pick up on something tia said uh, I don't think there's a in Georgia at least there's a Republican in the last 15 years who is in favor of the Voting Rights Act. the uh, the government the, the, the attorney general the law department under several attorney general attorneys general have have opposed the Voting Rights Act and and the legislators do and they continue to do it.
0: So um, one of the things we should point out here, and again, this is the broadest way of looking at this, because to get into the weeds, we could be talking for the next four hours. But Chuck Bullock, uh, in 2001, uh, Bobby Kahn's, Governor Barnes' maps were challenged in court as well. And some of those court challenges were successful
3: right yeah and what ultimately happened this regard to the state house and state senate case larry else v cox Supreme uh, the trial court and it simply got rubber stamped by the supreme court but the trial court said you know it didn't go into and talk about partisan gerrymandering and, and didn't even focus really on racial gerrymandering what it said is that and again this was based upon the explanation the state offered in defending the maps and the state said well yeah we 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 limited number of seats we put in North Georgia to kind of protect seats in South Georgia. And we tried to protect seats in the city of Atlanta and therefore maybe weren't as fair as we might've been to suburban areas. And with the Supreme court, what the trial court did and then ratified by the Supreme court it says, Hey, this goes all the way back to one of those very first redistricting cases when they came out of Alabama back in 1964, you know, we just said you can't you know, geographically gerrymander to, weaken the influence of certain parts of the state. And so those maps were struck down. uh, And maybe apropos today, uh, the legislature did not redraw the maps. And therefore, back there in 2004, a special master redrew both the state house and state senate.
0: Which here is exactly where Republicans could be headed with the maps this year. You know, it's interesting uh, on the show at the beginning of this week, Uh, Greg Bluestein suggested that there were some Republicans in the legislature who were willing to defy Judge Jones, but he didn't believe that would happen. He believed they would come up with a map that was close to, you know, that would give Jones some potential for approving it. That's not what happened. They, they too, defied Judge Jones, just as uh, we just heard Professor Bullock talk about uh, uh, back then— uh, and now Judge Jones is going to have to decide whether that defiance violates his order.
1: Right. And again, I, I I feel that Republicans are willing to roll the dice because if they defy, if, if the courts, and again, I think it's still going to be appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, just like Alabama was. It's just the Supreme Court upheld what the lower courts decided, basically. Um, but I think Republicans figure that the worst that can happen is they're forced to comply with what they should have done all along, but are able, remember we're talking about maps passed in what 2021 we're two years later and it's still being challenged. Even if uh, eventually Republicans are forced to comply with a special master, we're talking about 2023, 2024, maybe, you know, that means they were able to get away with it for four years if the maps are invalidated. But Best case, worst case scenario, they're able to get away with it for four years, so to speak. Best case scenario, they get enough people to say, well, it's good enough or it, it might have violated Section 5, but we no longer have Section 5. So we're going to let it stand. And they don't, again, frame figure of speech. They get away with it, period. Bobby?
4: Um, yeah, that, that could very well happen, but it could also they, they could split the baby and have, you know, the congressional map tossed, and maybe the Senate map tossed, but maybe you know they're. It's, it's, it reminds me of something Clint Eastwood said. Uh, and to, <laughs> <laughs> to, as
0: far as the Republicans go, it's are you feeling lucky today, <laughs> Bobby? Let me ask you a very different kind of question because we are coming to the end of our time on this subject. Here you were. I remember quite well. I covered that session. Uh, I covered you very closely. You and I uh, knew each other pretty well back then. And I can recall days coming into your little executive uh, office uh, next to the governor's uh, private office and seeing you under enormous pressure from legislators who were desperate to get maps that would keep them in power. Just... How intense is it to be in that position? How intense has it been for these leaders this year as they've gone through this special redistricting? Uh,
4: yeah, I mean, they, they they got some pressures on them. But I will tell you that um, they, they, these, the incumbent Democrats were not always desperate to stay in power. They were desperate – well, they were desperate to stay in power – but they were desperate to stay in power their way. <laughs> Which means what? They didn't always agree with uh, some of our thoughts on it. Uh, <laughs> you know, some of them were hard to help. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you, know, they didn't, you know, we were bipartisan and uh, irritating legislators.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, Chuck, uh, before we're going to have to move on, uh, but before we do, one of the things Bobby Kahn is saying, of course, is he's already referred to it. His boss, the governor, changed the state flag to get rid of or minimize the uh, Confederate image in it. Uh, They'd angered teachers uh, because they were talking about having standards which would promote certain teachers, maybe eliminate other teachers. I mean, there were any number of issues that were progressive for a conservative Democratic governor. So when Bobby says that the Democratic legislators didn't always – would uh, like the way things were developing, those are the kinds of things he was talking about. They were going to have to run on the issues Bobby Bobby's boss was bringing forward.
3: Yeah, and one of the things which I think often comes out, particularly when you're doing these hearings before redistricting in rural areas, is that local folks will come forward and say, well, we don't care whether our county is in a Democratic district or Republican district as long as our county is kept together. yes. And those maps that came out in 2001 split lots of counties that had heretofore always been together. And I guess the most egregious example, a poor little Candler County down in southeast Georgia, a county of about 10,000 people, and it got split into four different districts. And so people in a place like that say, we didn't have much influence under the old plan, but now if you take our tiny population, split it among four districts, no one of those four legislators is going to feel particularly beholden to us and particularly concerned about whatever bothers us.
0: Bobby, a real quick answer. I mean, compact districts matter. I think right now it's McDonough, which has been split by the Republican redistricting. I'm I'm not not sure. Okay. But But I know that Carrollton has been. Yeah. But, uh, you know,
4: what we were told, and this will hit home with Professor, but what we were told is you had to keep Clark County together, and we did. And ever since we left, Clark County has been split. It was split by the (laughs) state senator at the time, who's now governor. It was split by his (laughs) brother-in-law. And I'm just saying, you know, it's do as I say, not as
0: I do. Bobby Kahn, defending what happened back in 2001, but which still has echoes in redistricting that's going on in this special session this year. Bobby, we're going to let you go. Um, But as we continue after this break, let's get uh, Chuck Bullock and Tia Mitchell. I want to hear your thoughts on tonight's big Republican debate in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell, University of Georgia professor Charles Bullock. Let's spend a few minutes talking about tonight. Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Tia, is the site of the final, we think, at least Republican National Committee sanctioned debate for GOP candidates before the Iowa caucuses on January 15th. Four candidates on the stage only: uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, we also have uh, Nikki Haley, uh, Chris Christie, and Ron DeSantis. Tia, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, and I want to start off by saying I'm so grateful to our colleague Greg Bluestein. He's yeah. I think he's attended all of the debates, yeah. and he's in Tuscaloosa. Thank you. Yes, he to is. provide that coverage for us tonight and give us a recap tomorrow. But I think. You know, Nikki Haley has benefited greatly from the debates. I'm sure she would love if there were 10 more. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy has benefited somewhat, although I think he kind of had the first debate kind of helped increase his name recognition. And then he hasn't really helped himself since. Um, Chris Christie needs the debates because he needs that free earned media as the long shot candidate. And to me, Ron DeSantis is the one who continues to be the the person who needs the debates the most as he falters a little bit and his campaign is faltered. But he hasn't been able to take advantage of the platform. Will that change tonight?
0: Chuck Bullock, um, of course, these debates are all on national uh outlets, news outlets, T V outlets. But the reality is if you're on that stage tonight, you're most concerned with how you're being received in first Iowa and second New Hampshire. Do you think that's correct?
3: Yeah, because they're the ones who are going to vote first. And I, I and you know, with regard to Greg Bluestein been you know, over in, in South, yeah, know, I'm concerned about his physical safety. So I hope he's not wearing any UGA gear <laughs> while he's <laughs> over there. Uh, but uh, <laughs> he'll are making back alive, but uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. So you know what we're going to see. I suspect is more infighting among these four, or maybe particularly everyone, or at least two of the th- three, or ganging ganging up on Nikki Haley. And this is what you tend to see: is that uh, yeah, it's often will fight among those who are kind of closest to them, maybe in terms of the ranking or in terms of positions rather than going after number one. And number one is the man who isn't there. Uh, And so far, you know, yeah, uh, Chris Christie is very critical and very open in his criticism. Haley is moving in that direction, but then she's also having to fend off attacks from DeSantis and uh, from Ramaswamy. And if it kind of continues to be that, then uh, it doesn't help maybe any of them as much if they seem to be squabbling among themselves rather than trying to cut into the the broad support that uh, the former president
0: has I, I think that's really important trump of course is skipping this debate as he has all of the previous ones and tia what you hear from conservative commentators who are mm-hmm. who are not trump supporters and who are watching the way the rest of the candidates are approaching uh the uh their, the race is the road to the the GOP nomination is not going to be around Donald Trump. It has to be through Donald Trump, which is something Christie understands. He's very direct, of course, in attacking uh, Trump. But as long as uh, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramswamy, and uh, 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 Ron DeSantis continue to play kind of footsie with Donald Trump, it's questionable how far they're going to get in actually – Upsetting his lead.
1: Right. And I think that Nikki Haley is hopeful that if it's head to head Trump Haley, enough Republican voters will make another choice. I think Ron DeSantis feels the same way. Um, But I think there are other candidates, some of whom have since dropped out, that knew their best hope was a field where Donald Trump is no longer a possibility, whether it's because he gets, you know, put in jail and Republican voters truly turn away from him or for whatever reason decides he no longer wants to run. I think there are just a lot of Republicans who are hedging their bets, so to speak, that there is a time that comes where Trump um is is not a candidate now that is a that is a long shot there's no indication of that donald trump has said there's no indication of that donald trump has made it clear regardless of what the courts say he plans on becoming president quite frankly he hopes to become president so he can avoid whatever the courts say but i think that's still part of the calculus for some of these candidates
0: chuck um we have very little time left but Trump is in polling, in most of the polls I've seen, in the 40s, I think, in Iowa, and maybe in New Hampshire as well. Um, that's a significant lead over everybody else. But being in the 40s doesn't necessarily suggest that a surprise couldn't occur in one of those early states.
3: Quickly in, in Iowa, because Iowa, after all, as everybody knows, is a caucus and not a primary. Yeah. So that means that you have to have an organization to convince your supporters to go to the local courthouse or wherever this is going to be held, Uh, and they got to go and got to plan to be there for a while. It's not again like voting where you show up and unless there's no there's no line, you can do that in three to five minutes. You need to go and plan to spend the evening there. So that's why polling in Iowa is is so fraught with problems is that you don't know what your samples what you're sampling uh and therefore that's why we often and i we have seen surprises but what's happening here we got two different calendars and these calendars don't coincide there's a litigation calendar and again that involves georgia and new york and dc all these cases then there's the electoral calendar now what the polling and this is talking about national polling as well as georgia polling indicates is that the one thing which would really take the wind out of trump's sails is if he is convicted mm-hmm being indicted hasn't hurt him but there is a chunk of voters who say well if he's convicted yeah that's a that's a bridge too far i can't cross that so i guess the hope of these other candidates is maybe they can hang on long enough that maybe there'll be a conviction before trump wraps up the delegates necessary to gain the nomination.
0: Um, Tia, we're really out of time. but a last very quick comment from you. Uh, Nikki Haley is moving up to the edge of maybe being a little more critical of Trump. Chris Christie's already very critical. Ron DeSantis, a little critical of Trump. Do we really expect that a DeSantis or a Haley are going to really go even further in their criticism? You got about 20 seconds.
1: I I mean, my answer is, I think we'll see tonight. Um, This is their last chance.
0: Absolutely. All right. Um, We are completely out of time for today's Politically Georgia. Tia Mitchell, uh, thank you so much for being my partner again on today's show. Professor Charles Bullock, um, your expertise on redistricting and on politics in a broader way are always welcome on this show. Thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for spending time with us today on Politically Georgia. Remember that in addition to the podcast, you can also hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE on weekdays at 10 a.m. And of course, we'd love to have you continue to follow us on your podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again for a new Politically Georgia on the air or on your podcast platform tomorrow.